The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Last week, unintentionally, as we uh, had some recording issues when trying to capture the the Fort Worth Invitational Pod, uh, lots of great gems in there. We were all over all the top of the leaderboard plays. That's at least the story we're going to tell, since that uh, those never hit the airwaves. Um, Colin, I guess I guess I can't really uh, get away with that, since people can just reference our play last week. While well, you had a good uh, finish in one of the three max entries. Uh, I did not have that great of a week last week. Didn't kind of hit the right combinations. Um, so let's let's go through a little bit of a recap of the Fort Worth Invitational before uh, we move over to Jack's course at Mirfield Village. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought it was, especially after the tournament we had had the week prior, I thought that it was, uh, well, maybe not an exciting finish, but at least a quality tournament from a leaderboard perspective. And Justin Rose obviously coming through with that big victory. Uh, the thing that was surprising to me is the team that I had that finished fifth in the $150 three max had Rose at 9.9% ownership. And so that's definitely not something I was expecting. I think we had him kind of projected in the mid-teens and definitely had him as a little bit low-owned. But I think that's something that you see a little bit more in the three max formats is, you know, maybe some congregated ownership. Um, in general, I was pretty close to a better week in a couple spots. But, um, I, I mean, a 6-6 six six team with uh, Grillo and Rose uh, ended up being good enough. Um, looking forward to this week, though. I think the course is really strong. The field is really strong. And in general, uh, hopefully it's going to be a really competitive golf tournament with a high-end leaderboard. Yeah, par 72, uh, 7,400 yards at Muirfield Village. Uh, obviously, this is this is treated as Jack Nicklaus's event. Um, it's a it's because of that it tends to draw pretty darn strong fields. And I think it's an interesting course in that you know 7,400 yards is on the slightly longer end, but in general the way the course is set up it kind of forces, it, it, it removes distance from the equation on a number of holes that, you know, if you just looked at the distances themselves, you might think, oh, those those are holes that'll favor bombers. But the way the course is spread out with dog legs, uh, water on a lot of the approach shots, it just makes for a lot of decisions. Um, and if you look at some of the players that have done well in the past here, guys like Jason Duffner, or past winners, I should say, Jason Duffner, uh, Hideki, Justin Rose, Dirt McGirt, uh, David Lingmurth. It's a wide range of skill sets in there, but I would say it's once again a, a course that seems to favor approach a little bit more than off the tee, a little bit more than putting. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you kind of get the water on half of the approach shots. Like you mentioned, even some of the holes that if you just open up a scorecard, they look short. Like they, they force you to certain landing spots. And I think that's something you see is consistent with a lot of Nicholas uh, courses. And uh, I guess when you think about his style of play is, you know, really wanting to set up a course where anyone can win. And the, the list of winners is definitely a anyone can win type environment. But I would say that all of those guys, when they're on, are definitely stronger on their approach game than they are as far as off the tee. Like, you know, Rose and Hideki can get it out there and keep it accurate, but they definitely have a really strong approach game. And, and Duffner and McGirt aren't typically really long players. Um, I think that when you look at the data golf uh, 
metric as far as what drives variation in scores. You see that around 40% of strokes are gained on approach at this event compared to a tour average of 35%. A lot of that comes from putting, and, and that is another thing that we think about. I don't know, Duffner, Rose, and Hideki, definitely not re- really strong putters. And so I think uh, if you are going to kind of give a tiebreaker to any um, of the individual sets, I think a slight lean on approach, but definitely want to be able to get the ball in play and, and kind of play strategically around the golf course. Yeah, and perhaps because the event is so fresh in our minds, uh, when you talk about water on a lot of approach shots, when you talk about uh, approach being favored over you know off the tee and over putting, and you talk about strong field and perhaps volatile results, I immediately think of Sawgrass and the Players' Championship. Um, and when we look through some of the traditional course history guys at, at this event, you see some of the same types of you know, large variations in strong performances that we saw from guys that had good course history at the players as well. I'll highlight Justin Rose as an example here, who has gone second, miscut, eighth, eighth, miscut, first, miscut, second, 14th. So, I mean, you've got five top tens there, three top twos, and three miscuts in the last 10 years for Justin Rose. Yeah, and that's it's pretty crazy, and that's one of the strongest course histories that you can find is Justin Rose's. I'm sure we'll get into the players later, but he'll definitely be a popular option after his performance last week. Um, it was, you know, to me, the first instinct was that the volatility is caused by the water and the, the penalty strokes that can be had if you hit a bad approach shot, but definitely was a valid point raised in Slack chat by Nelson that Nelson Adcock, uh, that may, maybe it's just a strong field that causes a lot of the volatility. Um, it should be a good event. I think, you know, Matt Kuchar is probably the guy who offers the steadiest course history, made his last 10 cuts here, a uh, bunch of finishes inside of the top 15 and inside of the top five. He's got a win here in addition to five top five finishes in that same time period. So always a guy that we look to in cash games and we think about as having that sort of top 20 comfort zone, but he's shown upside here. And he's really the the only example I could find of a guy that had flashed that top end, you know, high end finishes and also produced a really steady line of results. And so that's no doubt going to drive some ownership this week. I'm just glad we finally found a course during, during the, the summer months that Kuchar doesn't like, because it seems like every week when we talk course history, somehow Kuchar is finding his way in here with just unbelievable consistency um, what a career that that dude has had. When you look at uh, the Data Golf Course History Index, some of the players uh, uh, top on, on the, the per-round basis, Kuchar is right up there, Justin Rose is right up there in a much smaller sample. Tony Finau is up there at uh, over two strokes, gained on the field over his 12 rounds. One name that was up there that was interesting to me because his form has been so good of late, but he's been his long-term form has been so weak is Rory Sabatini. Um, only 14 rounds, but he's he's up on that course history index as well. And if you look at some of our uh, shots gain, our strokes gain trends, uh, if you look at the tee to green stuff, Roy Sabatini's just been a monster over the last six weeks or so. Um, I guess we can talk about him a little bit when we get down in the 7K range, but it was just a name that kind of popped up that I was a little bit surprised with. Um, one thing to note with this event is, you know, it's an in- invitational tournament once again, and like last week, the smaller field size leads to a little bit higher made cut probability. And so this week, looking at some of our made cut optimals to get six of six across the, the cut line, we're more closer to like high 20s in terms of percentages uh, of chance to do that. Most weeks, that number is much, much lower, right, Colin? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, some weeks it's as low as 13%. Uh, the Invitational makes it higher, but even last week's event, which was a similar field size, I think was, you know, closer to 25%. So uh, maybe some of that is uh, mispricing compared to our projections, and some of that is the strength of the field. Um, I would I would say, yeah, I mean, it, it'll be an interesting week for sure. Uh, definitely an event I fo- I'm fond of. It was kind of my first big uh, PGA DFS score was a few years ago winning the, the Club Pro or whatever it was at the time. So took a little trip down memory lane looking at that lineup. The craziest thing to me was I won without having the winner or the second place guy. And I think that shows how how much softer maybe the DFS golf games were back then um, than they are now, where it seems like you you really need to be all over the leaderboard and you definitely need to have the winner if you're going to be winning a GPP. Yeah. So perhaps we should have included you in the course history metrics as well with your solid course history here at the Memorial. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let's get into the players. We'll start at the very top of the pricing spectrum, uh, where we usually do when, when we start these conversations. We've got Dust, Dustin Johnson up at the top, followed by Jason Day, Rory McIlroy, Justin Rose, and Justin Thomas. Five players priced above 10000 Uh The most notable thing about the 10000 plus range to me this week is no Jordan Spieth. Where did he go? We'll talk about him in a little bit. Is there any differentiators among the 10 plus golfers for you this week, either on you know early ownership side or on kind of recent form side, because frankly most of these guys look priced pretty efficiently to me. Yeah, it definitely seems like they're priced efficiently um, as far as the kind of stack ranking of the order that we have them in compared to our projections um, over at Daily Roto. So no real outliers there. Uh, I think that. By the time the week is done, I imagine Dustin Johnson will end up as lower owned of this group uh, just because he hasn't had the same strong finishes. Uh, Jason Day is a Columbus area uh, native, at least at least part of the time, like like most golfers, you know. But he's he's considers it kind of a home event. And then you get a big discount on Justin Rose and Justin Thomas. Um, and so I think that'll end up leading to to some ownership uh, reduction off of Dustin Johnson. And that might make him interesting for uh, MME builds. I would say generally over the past couple months, I found it a little bit easier to build balanced rosters. And when I was looking at things this week uh, with some of the pricing and some of the names that you have right there, my inclination definitely was still to build balanced rosters. So uh, DJ Day would be more GPP plays for me. Uh, tournaments, I think, uh, for cash games or smaller field stuff, I think I would rather pay down. Uh, but I would be, I'd certainly be interested in DJ if he ends up down near 10% in some formats. And it wouldn't surprise me if that ends up being the case by the time uh, T-Op rolls around. Yeah, I think the other name that you kind of skipped over there that might get lost in the shuffle from an ownership perspective, um, we'll see, is Rory. I, I feel like it. maybe it's just my own personal reaction, but if I was to X out a player from that group, for me, it would probably be Rory. And I usually my instincts are towards chalk. So I'm guessing he might be, in a, along with Dustin Johnson, might be one of the guys that fall victim to kind of their placing amongst that group. Like Rory being a little bit higher than Rose on the pricing spectrum, I think will lead to a little bit of an ownership discount there. But I agree with you. When I started to like play around with Bills, the first thing I noticed was that while there is a ton of depth to this field, and that certainly does... Uh, bring you values in the 7k range the values feel more condensed in the like nines eights 
and a few in the sevens and then below seven looks really, really difficult once again. So to me, that was kind of forcing me into, hey, I want to use a couple 9K guys or I want to use a, you know, a 9K guy and an 8K guy. And just that kind of build necessitates getting away from some of the high end golfers in general. Yeah, and I I think my inclination too when you look at the pricing and then the fit is just uh, it is a course where DJ and Rory certainly can contend, but it's not going to let them take advantage of you know their biggest weapons and and all of that could end up shaking out in the ownership too. Uh, I would say that the guy at first glance that I was most comfortable with was Justin Rose, uh, and I imagine that'll end up leading to a chalky Justin Rose, but. His uh, history here is good. His course fit. So forget the history, just his course fit when you talk about those characteristics was really good. And then if we think approach matters, Rose gained 10 strokes on approach last week in his victory. And so all of that would set him up as a really nice play. And his price is kind of in that range where it's not crippling to build around him the same way it might be to get up to DJ. And so, um, I, I mean, my inclination is that I like Rose kind of um, – the most as far as a, a price and fit and value perspective. But if the ownership ends up pretty heavy in tournaments, then I'm going to be looking elsewhere. And, and Justin Thomas obviously is capable of flashing the, the upside as well. And so like, like most weeks, it seems pretty efficient in this um, range. I don't really think you're getting a huge advantage as far as out projecting DraftKings in this range. And I think it's more about the ownership. And you know, like we saw last week, like there's going to be a guy who ends up 10%, especially in some smaller field game formats. Yeah. Justin Rose's second round last week was, um, it was the type of round that when you see a guy shoot a 59, you understand why I think on the front, on um, his front nine, which I believe was the back nine, I think he had seven approach shots within 10 feet. I mean, he just had, and he wasn't making putts and he still shot, I think mid sixties on that round. It was just, it was incredible. Let's move down to below 10K in the 9K range, where at the very top, we've got Jordan Spieth at a little bit of a different price point than we've seen in recent weeks, followed by Ricky Fowler, Tiger Woods, Henrik Stenson, Hideki Matsuyama, and Mark Leishman. Spieth really sticks out like a sore thumb to me from a pricing perspective, just because most of these other guys have been in this price range all year long, whereas Spieth has been in the high 10s, low 11s, kind of in that Jason Day, Dustin Johnson price range all year long. And here we are getting him, you know, $1,500, $1,300 cheaper than those guys. What do we do with Jordan Spieth? <laughs> I mean, he's just crushing T to green too. And that's the other thing that has definitely been frustrating if you've been investing your money in Spieth is that uh, you're kind of getting these consistently really strong T to green performances and just nothing, just nothing with the putter. Uh, I feel like we've talked about this at this point, basically for the past few events, every time he plays in the field, uh, he hasn't finished worse than 60th on the tour in strokes gained putting since his rookie season. And that was his rookie season. And most of his results have been inside of the top 30. You would expect that this would bounce back eventually, but it just, it hasn't been happening. And the results have been, I'd say they haven't been great, but they definitely haven't been uh, very poor. Um, and, you know, for, for a $9,800 golfer, you could be the second most expensive guy. He could be your lead guy if you wanted to make it. Uh, in general, we were talking about the fit. We were saying that uh, strokes gained, tee to green, stroke gained approach are going to matter a bit more here than they would the typical event, putting maybe a bit less. So the current Jordan Speed, who's good at approach and sucks at putting, I guess that benefits him a little bit. Um, I feel like the ownership will be there. I'll end up having some speed. Uh, not sure 
how much at this point, but it seems like you got to buy low. He's the one guy of all these top guys that's been playing a lot of late. This will be his fourth straight week playing. Does that does fatigue ever play a factor when differentiating between guys? At what level would that come into play with you? Like, is there ever a warning sign for you if you see a guy consistently in event after event after event kind of leading up? Uh, I don't know. Maybe our boy Steve Stricker if he plays too much. But <laughs> Grab, he's... Grabbing at his back last week, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we all thought he was going to WD, and then he came back. No, I mean, Spieth, I don't think I'm getting worried about that. He's obviously, feels like he must be frustrated and trying yeah. to find something, trying to make some money. Um, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, I mean, four rounds in a row for the guy Spieth's age, despite his hairline, should be okay. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he is trying to find something out there in advance of the U.S. Open, and I feel like he is putting the pedal to the metal to try to find it and then take some time off the moment he finds it to try to like rest and recuperate and have that good feeling um, in his head going into the U.S. Open. We'll see if it comes this week for Jordan Spieth. Um, in that price range as well, Ricky Fowler and Tiger Woods, I'm interested because we went through this period with Tiger Woods where when he first came back, it seems like you were just fighting incredible ownership every single week. And it was so frustrating because, one, he was a very difficult player to project because you had to basically get to a point where you were comfortable throwing out uh, big sets of data from when he was hurt. And then since then, I mean, he's done nothing but play well, and the price has come down, and the ownership has evaporated. I really don't understand what's going on. He basically he miscut at the Genesis, then 12th at Honda, 2nd at Valspar, 5th at, a at API, 32nd at the Masters, 55th at Wells Fargo was a little bit disappointing, but 11th in the Players' Championship with that incredible weekend where he made the cut on the number, then went out Saturday, shot low, went out Sunday, put together another good round. What, I mean, are people going to flock back to Tiger, or are we still going to get potentially discounted ownership that we didn't see when he first came back? And I think we have even more data points to justify being confident in Tiger being back. Yeah, I think people will get there eventually. I know early ownership projections have them pretty low, but like a lot of times in the early week, I feel like people are just lazy with like, you know, they're just rattling off course history and, and things like that. And then uh, eventually the steam will start to pick up. And like we said, it just takes one tweet from the Tiger Tracker of like him stuffing approaches on a practice round and all of a sudden the ownership's up around 20%. Uh, we, I mean, we like Tiger and Fowler this week for sure. Definitely seem like um, solid plays. I think that Fowler's ownership will end up being lower than Tiger's. I, I bet Tiger gets up, you know, 15, 20% uh, pretty quickly in the ownership projections. Uh, the one name, you know, and Tiger's won this event twice in the last 10 years, too. So I'd say the one name that I'm most interested in, in is a pivot. And then I got a question for you on another guy. Uh, but Henrik Stenson seems like a good pivot. Hasn't played this event recently. Doesn't have... Uh, great high-end finishes here, and I think all of that is going to end up keeping his ownership really low, but he projects as a solid value that is more than $1,000 underpriced, and so to me, that seems like a guy that probably comfortable in cash games with him if you want to, but seems like a really good bet for a uh, tournament option if his ownership stays there. Yeah, And I then the, I was going to say, the question I have is, is Hideki and, you know, what, what to make of him just because long-term he's uh, outstanding player and outstanding fit won the event before but the data short term doesn't look as good no it looks really scary with Hideki short term and I mean as scary in the sense that he just doesn't look like himself and in a really strong field with what I would say like long term a discounted price tag but short term 
everybody else around him has all of the sort of form that you would like to see in terms of gaining strokes tee to green. We've seen it consistently with Tiger. We've seen it consistently with Stenson. We've seen it consistently with Ricky Fowler. I just don't know that I can pay for that inconsistency for Hideki. I do think it'll come with low ownership. So from you know a contrarian, large field MME standpoint, I don't think he's a bad play, but he's a player that I would be trying to manage my exposure if I was going to have any at all. And he is not a player that would make my three max or my single entry builds or my cash game consideration. Uh, Stenson, who you mentioned, I think is really interesting because Stenson is a guy that I think years ago had a little bit more luster in terms of the DFS community that really liked playing Stenson. I think that wore off after he went through that one year where he like withdrew and and, uh, and he had one other like terrible event where he was super chalky. And since then, it seems like people just haven't been as excited to play him except when there's egregious pricing like there was at the Masters. I think this is underpriced, but I don't think this is egregious. And I think because he's close to Fowler and Tiger, he will come in with reasonable ownership, uh, probably around 10, maybe sub 10. And I think he is pretty interesting uh, from that perspective. I would say kind of wrapping up this section of plays for the for the 9K area, I'm very interested in Speed Fowler, Tiger, Hideki. I'm less interested in, or excuse me, I'm very interested in Speed Tiger, Fowler, Henrik. I'm less interested in Hideki and Leishman. Leishman just feels a little bit overpriced relative to, to everybody else in this area. The, the only thing I would add is that there are formats where Hideki might hit 5% ownership yeah. if, if um, you know, I think in the MME builds, people spread the risk and they build enough 150 lineups, you're going to have some exposure to a lot of players. So he ends up a little higher in that. But I could see that some formats him being at 5% might make sense to take a shot on in a queue or a really top heavy yeah. um, format just because you kind of got a, a little bit of upside if something clicks. But like you said, purely from projections, not projecting great. And then you look for reasons to want to buy into it with underlying stuff like strokes gain approach over his last four events, and you see nothing there. And so you're like, eh, we might as well move to the 8K range. And, I mean, there's also not a ton of outs for Hideki if the approaches aren't there. I mean, like, it's not like he's going to have an unbelievable putting week to kind of save you. That That's kind of uh, asking for a lot from Hideki. Uh, in the 8K range at the top, we've got Patrick Reed, Brandon Grace, Bubba Watson, Adam Scott, Matt Kuchar, Emiliano Grillo, Phil Mickelson, Charles Schwartzel, Tony Finau, and Jason Duffner. This is a very interesting pricing range to me because it seems like a mix of the guys who have turned on the form of late but had a little bit of a bump in terms of the, the last year and a half or so in the long-term form. Guys like Bubba Watson, Patrick Reed, Adam Scott. Um, and then it's like the consistent as consistent can be. Guys like Matt Kuchar and Phil Mickelson who've just been catching checks for a while. And then some guys whose form might be better than you think of late um, in terms of a guy like Emiliano Grillo. I was noting in our finish probabilities that Grillo has now surpassed Hideki in terms of our uh, made cut odds or top 20 odds. And that, that took me by surprise at first. But then you look through Grillo's results and they've been really, really solid, including last week. I feel like from a pricing perspective, he's a guy that feels like he doesn't fit in this range. But because the recent form has been good, I still think ownership is going to be there. So I'm in a weird spot with Grillo. And the guys who stick out to me immediately on long-term form are Kucher and Phil. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Um, I mean, Grillo's approach game has been through the roof as well. And, and so he's going to fit sort of all those fit boxes. So uh, all of that's going to carry the ownership. 
I, w- I would know it, it is pretty crazy. Uh, I believe he gained 10.7 strokes on the field last week putting. So that is certainly going to regress back down. Even if you, even if, I mean, he's been a solid putter most of the year. So um, still, that's an outlier. You would expect, you know, maybe one to two strokes gained putting over the course of an event would be a, a solid performance. So probably, um, I guess if the ownership's there, which seems like it will be, uh, a little bit less excited in tournaments. And I prefer just Matt Kuchar in cash games. Or if you're looking for that safety, I just feel like the the upside is um, just as high. The safety is maybe a little bit higher. And it, it is one of those situations where his course history is, is so extreme that maybe I'll give it a little bit more merit than I would in another week. Um, I like Phil for tournaments. Uh, I think that his track record here is it's not exceptional by any means but he was second in the field last year at this event in strokes gained tee to green just had a a rare kind of poor putting performance for him i know the water balls are always a little scary with phil so definitely more of a tournament play but i think he's a nice pivot off of both kuchar and Grio. the interesting thing about phil's course history here as well is um he hasn't missed a cut in the last 10 years but he has withdrawn twice i don't know what that's about um but he's got a bunch of top 20s in that span so like not a lot of really high-end finishes two top fives that were much earlier you know 2010 2006 um but you know not bad course history by by any means and you know outside of the players where phil was just awful um he has been a machine this year with i think he had like four or five top fives in the last 10 events so to see him down at 8300 um Emiliano Grillo, priced below, you know, Patrick Reed and these guys who have shown form of late as well. Um, but Phil has kind of that longer term history as well to lean on was surprising to me. And I'm interested to see where ownership kind of stands, because if people like get in their heads that this isn't a great fit, um, I will take advantage of that price because, frankly, the price is really, really appealing to me. Um, at the very low end of the range, your boy, Jason Duffner, who carried you to your own good course history a few years back. Seems like a good course fit for him. Seems like an annoying price tag to me. What are your thoughts on Duffner? Yeah, definitely an annoying price tag. Um, I'll I'll send a text to his agent to get a get a um, recommendation for our subscribers. <laughs> get a little home home course knowledge there. And um, I don't know. I, he feels overpriced. Uh, maybe in an MME, probably not in a three max. Just some of the names above. Unless I get a really strong text uh, response. <laughs> um, I would say I was also really surprised by Bubba Watson's projected ownership yeah. and. Uh, obviously something there between Vegas odds and other people touting him, but um, probably a guy that I, I don't need to play if he's uh, super chalky. I might have forced for like good DK scoring elements, but I don't know. His, his course history is not exceptional here. The off the tee game is kind of removed a little bit. So I was surprised that he's being talked up as much as he was. Uh, the other guy I definitely am interested in. Um, well, I, I think like Adam Scott and Brandon Grace project as decent leverage plays in GPPs. And then I think that Tony Finau is always a guy that we're going to look to. Um, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before he made the cut on the number with the birdie streak. So that was pretty nice. But he, he sets up, uh, you know, as a solid pricing value if you're building balance lineups here. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on to the seven to eight K range. This is obviously a range just loaded with names to sort through and kind of sift through. And the first thing that struck me when I opened up pricing and when I opened up data golf projections 
was Patrick Cantley, who was 9,000 last week. Very disappointing for us last week. Just did not have the approach game with him last week and missed the cut. Has dropped all the way to 7,400. And I know this is a, a stronger field than last week, but that is an aggressive price drop um, and one that is is looks like the largest in the field other than maybe Aaron Wise. I think Wise was maybe a little bit priced higher last week, but we thought that was a bad price on Wise. I I don't know what to do uh, with with Cantlay. I'm interested to see what ownership uh, what ownership comes in at because I I can't lay off this price tag at 7,400. I know he his approach game was awful last week, but before that he had been accumulating strokes tee to green by wide margins. Um, he had two miscuts in the last four events, which makes it feel like really tilty and frustrating to play Patrick Cantlay. But if you look before that, he had made 20 in a row before that. So now he's 22 of 24 over the last 24 events with 15 top 30s and seven top 10s in that span. That does not look like a $7,400 player to me if you zoom out. If you zoom in, it's been very frustrating, and I understand that. And I'm hoping that keeps ownership in check this week. <laughs> I don't think I let that horrible pun slide by. <laughs> was, I, I don't know. I feel like by your standards, there should be better puns on this podcast than can't lay off Patrick, I think. <laughs> but I, I agree with you generally. Um the the fact that he lost all of it on approach is probably the most frustrating. I know the putting weeks are really bad and really frustrating, but it's easier to overlook those than when it's egregious tee to green play. Uh, that will probably keep my exposure in check in tournaments, but in check is still probably you know 25% at a minimum, 35% at kind of a maximum. Uh, I I have to think just one of the things we usually see is ownership in this range gets spread out a little bit more so. And there are reasonable options uh, that are priced either just above or just below. So even if he picks up a little bit of steam as the week goes on, one of the things I noted was that he is underpriced to the other guys in this range in the top 20 markets. And a lot of times that ends up driving ownership, even if people aren't touting him. So um, I could see the ownership going up. I could see it getting up to 15 percent would be kind of maybe my guess right now. It's hard to see it getting above 20, and I would definitely still be playing him at 15%. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm hoping for sub-10, but we'll see where that ultimately goes. There's a lot of names in this range that have been playing well of late that have been rewarding people or players that just recently turned it on. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, a guy that we seem to be talking about weekly, that there's a little bit of a disconnect between the finished probabilities model and the fantasy scoring model because he had such a longer string of inconsistency and missed cuts. Uh, kind of flowing through that, but really high-end finishes when he does kind of make the cut. I assume he will carry ownership at 7,700. I assume uh, Louis Oosthuizen uh, might carry some kind of leftover ownership after performing well at a low number last week. Uh, Kevin Na, who's put together a couple big weeks in a row, um, might carry some ownership. Um, I, I'm interested in some other guys in this range. Um, the next guy after Cantlay, priced right above him that I thought was interesting, is Ryan Moore. Who looks really good in the finish probabilities model. He's gained strokes tee to green on six straight events. Um, he has some under-the-radar high-end finishes surrounding some missed cuts, and he was gaining strokes tee to green even around those missed cuts. So if you look, he's got two top tens in the last six, four in the last 12 events. It seems like the tee to green game has been pretty consistent for Ryan Moore. It's just the putting has been wildly inconsistent, and those are usually guys that I like to take shots on. I think he might go a little bit overlooked in this range, at 7,500, he's one of the names I'm interested in. 
Definitely. And, and you like to see, um, you know, a lot of times I would say the, the fit um, elements are, you know, maybe subtle when I think about the top ranked golfers who can kind of win on any course in the world. And then maybe you lean on them a little bit more with some of the, the value selections just because there's so many guys to choose from. And uh, the projections are often within like a point or two from a DraftKings scoring perspective. So it's nice to find those tiebreakers. And I think that more with the strokes gained approach is a nice kind of confirmation bias of, of why he projects as a good play uh bryson like you said is is just a tough one from an ownership perspective because his tee to green uh stuff is so strong that he's always going to pop on uh websites like fantasy national so in some ways you're kind of just like you're not really squeezing that much value out of him in dfs uh maybe a better guy for betting markets um I think Adam Hadwin, you can kind of go back there again this week if you want either uh, pivot off of Cantlay if he ends up kind of at half the ownership or you just want another guy, $7,400 to load up on. Um, you know, not a spectacular finish and a little bit disappointing on the weekend as far as how he progressed last week, but certainly no red flags on the radar there. And then another guy that um, I think, you know, was really popular uh, for a long time was priced up. I mean, $10,000 in some events, and that's Luke List. Um, I know his biggest weapon or one of his biggest weapons is definitely his length off the tee, but he had some really high and uh, strokes gained approach performances this year and strokes gained tee to green in general. And so I think that List is a nice target for tournaments as well. Yeah, I'm interested in List as well. When I was looking at our, our strokes gained trends, his his strokes gained tee to green you know, wide bars, like really, really strong, consistent, long bars, which is what you like to see in the strokes gain tee to green, adding three plus strokes of uh, tee to green per event uh, pretty consistently there. Hadwin, you mentioned 18 straight made cuts for him. He's gained strokes tee to green in nine of the last 10 events. He is a guy that I, like I've talked about before, liking guys who have just failed at chalk ownership um, and even more so when they miss cut because people really run away. But, like, a really tame, like, made the cut barely, slow weekend, not a lot of birdies, didn't reward people in, like, showdown, slates, uh, that's just as good to me. And getting another another cut made under the belt, getting more rounds under the belt for Hadwin at 7,400, I think is interesting. Uh, two other guys a little bit below that that caught my eye on the strokes gained trends. Uh, Keegan Bradley, who I feel dirty talking about all year long, it seems like, um, after basically him ruining my DFS golf seasons the last two years, but he's he's made eight straight cuts. He's 21 of 23 since missing the cut at Memorial last season, and he's gained strokes tee to green in 10 of the last 11 events. He's flashed some high-end finishes there. He's only 7,200. He doesn't seem to be carrying ownership with him um, when he's been priced in the high sixes, low sevens, kind of consistently throughout the season. I'm I'm in on Keegan still. And then Jamie Lovemark, who's made eight of nine cuts after a horrible stretch where he missed four cuts in a row. In those nine events of late, he's gained strokes tee to green in seven of those, four or more in six of those, and he's gotten six top 30 finishes. I like Lovemark as a GPP guy because when he puts it together, he seems to generate high-end finishes, but the consistency in terms of grinding out rounds is not there with Lovemark, which kind of keeps him off my cash game uh, radar most weeks. Yeah, and I think that is more of a dogleg or 150 max in the $5 play uh, for me than it would be a play that I'd be looking towards in three max just because that that the upside is there, but you can kind of find some comparable upside maybe without quite as much risk. And so I, I agree he's more of like the, the Oprah Sprinkle than he is uh, kind of a core play. Uh, other guy I know we've talked about a little bit on and off, uh, whether it's on the podcast or in chat, is Joaquin Neiman, uh, who 
is one former top-ranked amateur golfer in the world and has only made a handful of starts on the Pro Tour. Um, but one of the things that caught my eye was that in the strokes gained trends, his strokes gained approach has been particularly strong in two of his four events where that has been uh, measured, gaining seven-plus strokes on approach. And tells you a little bit more about him maybe that we need, knew before. He's not somebody that's going to pop in the uh, database projection models until we get a bigger sample of rounds under him. And so that's a guy that I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to do with. Um, but he is someone that I think warrants a deeper dive but beyond just kind of slamming projections in a, you know MME-type format. Along those lines, uh, I opened the show kind of talking about this, but Rory Sabatini at 7,300 is like, you know, projecting is like a break-even play in, in, in data golf's projections. And I understand why the data on Sabatini would be, would struggle with kind of taking into account what he's been of late compared to what he, I mean, he went through a period in 2017 where I think he was missing like 75% of the cuts. And so that having that on even your your longer term form page that is tough to get over. But of late he's gone T20, T13, T30, T27, T23, T70, T43, T5, T17. He's made like 13 straight cuts, something like that. And the strokes gain trends on uh, the databases that you put together, Colin, are very very strong T to green over the last like six seven events where he's gained consistently three plus strokes. Uh, Tita Green, are you in at all on this Rory Sabatini kind of revolution that we've seen over the last three months? It, it's definitely a, a tough one to figure out. And I know that I had exposure to him in some of the weaker fields, but haven't really been playing him in the stronger fields. Um, probably not uh, just because of, I don't know, like the, the projections aren't great. The ownership looks like it's going to be there because of some of those things that you talked about, um, at least to a point where it's not interesting enough. Like right now, he's projecting ahead of Zach Johnson in projected ownership. I'm not sure if that'll be the case um, when it comes around, but I do think that missed cut from Zach Johnson is going to cause a lot of people to kind of jump off of him. And so he, he's a guy I'd rather play. Uh, if they're the same level of ownership, I definitely think Zach Johnson's a better play in tournaments. If uh, ZJ was to hit 10% and Sabatini was at 6%, I'd still rather play Zach Johnson. Yeah, I think that's the challenge with Sabatini is that while the recent form has been great, I feel like there's players that are priced around him that are superior long-term candidates and like not not even just like better than, like way, way better in guys like Patrick Cantley and Adam Hadwin. Um, one guy that is a good long-term form candidate but has not had the strong recent form that I might be taking a little bit of a break from is Pat Perez. Um, he's definitely underpriced relative to the long-term form, which was great. And the form, even you don't even have to look back too far. I mean, it was basically you know three, four months ago that he was making cut after cut after cut. But the strokes gain trends have faded away. There's not he's not really doing anything great in any one area. He's kind of uh, muddling around, and he's missed three of his last four cuts. At 7,100, I don't think he'll carry much ownership. So I think in like large field GPPs, I would still fire. But in like three max single entry cash games, I need a little bit of a break from Pat Perez. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. I think the one good thing about our podcast uh, not recording or only recording half the audio last week was that it spared me from spreading a little bit of fake news about Pat Perez and his his wife's pregnancy to the world. So yeah, you, I were, love predicting, that one you were predicting the most premature birth. Uh, possibly in history with, yeah. with your with your Pat Perez baby watch takes. Uh, apparently, 
uh, Pat Perez and his wife are expecting in September. So we're still we still got some time before waiting that one out. So I would I mean I would say that um, I mean I, tr- I trust Data Golf's projections and probabilities. Uh, I'm not comfortable with Pat Perez in cash games, but seems underpriced for tournaments. It seems like he he could be worth a gamble in that type of format. Um, obviously, there's a couple ways that the leverage plays work out, and talked about this a little bit in the pro tip. Uh, the first way that they work out is just by the chalky players missing the cut. And so you get a little bit of leverage um, if the more popular golfer misses the cut, which happens maybe 30, 35% of the time. And um, and that's nice. But the other way is you, you capture the high-end finish at low ownership, and that's the other way that you can kind of be rewarded with the leverage. So I think in large field GPPs, it would make sense to sprinkle Perez. I think there's some other guys that make sense to sprinkle. I think, you know, Bill Haas is a guy that um, I played a little bit of last week, had a pretty decent finish. I think a uh, little bit of a down year for him in general, but this would be the type of course that you would play someone like Bill Hassan, where it is typically in the top, you know, kind of the upper 20th percentile as far as the difficulty of this tournament on a year to year basis. And so, you know, when it, it's course that uh, par might be a good score, then someone like Haas is another guy that I would be looking to in um, in tournaments. And then I think there's some other options as you kind of get down to like the $7,000 range. Kind of curious to see where guys like Charlie Hoffman, Kevin Streelman uh, end up for the ownership. Because if you want to go up and you want to try to force some contrarian teams by grabbing DJ, hoping that you get a victory out of him, then you kind of want to get um, away from the, you know, the, I guess, more expensive golfers. You need to find some value. So Hoffman and Streelman, I think, are kind of on the on the radar there yeah Hoffman is is interesting to me because he's a guy that he can flash high-end strokes gained approach and he can make birdies um, he's a good DK scorer as well so I'm in on Hoffman at 7,000 I think he might go a little bit overlooked um, in this tournament and then we get to the dreaded below 7,000 range where we always have challenges trying to identify uh, players below 7,000 that look like they have reasonable odds of finishing within inside, inside the top 20 uh, that can be kind of interesting plays on the whole. Um, the names that kind of jumped out to me that, you know, we've looked at of late in kind of mid 7,000 prices, Sam Burns, Martin Laird, um, the name value of, of guys like Gary Woodland and Ollie Schneiderjans kind of stood out a little bit. Um, but in general, this wasn't a range that I felt very comfortable with and i felt substantially more comfortable just a few hundred dollars up yeah and i think you know bet Stuart sink last week's top 20 was feeling decent for a little while but uh <laughs> uh failed on sunday he was on my team that finished in the uh top five of the three max at i think like one percent ownership or two percent or something like that i think he would still be kind of in that same mme mix but like you said in general that's one of the things that's been steering us away from the top end range is that there aren't as many good players in the value range. I think that Sink would be on, on the radar. I think that Gary Woodland would be on the radar. Definitely, uh, I guess, short-term results that are holding him back a little bit and not not sure what's going on there. So that might be something I want to do a little. Uh, I know we talk a lot about data. We talk a lot about quantitative research, but I might want to do a little qualitative research into what's going on um, with Gary Woodland. I think that in general, I'll probably end up as it is most weeks, I'll probably end up steering clear of this range outside of a sprinkle or two. Okay, well, let's let's wrap up the DraftKings talk, and let's spend a little bit of time uh, switching over to FanDuel. 
Um, we're trying to incorporate, you know, FanDuel's been running a pretty good golf product for, you know, the last year or so, and uh, trying to incorporate some, some of the discussion over into FanDuel as well. I know most of our listeners are playing DraftKings, but want everybody, want to cover everything for everybody if we can. Um, looking at kind of the top-end pricing over on FanDuel, it's all, it always seems like it's easier to kind of jam in those studs, but I thought it was interesting that Dustin Johnson is not the highest-priced golfer over on FanDuel. Justin Rose and Jason Day uh, have him outpaced. And then Jordan Spieth's price discount to the top guys is much less over on FanDuel. He's at 11.8, Rose and Day are mid-12s, DJ's low 12s. Not as big of a pricing gap between Jordan Spieth and the top-end guys over on FanDuel. Yeah, definitely. And the other interesting thing about FanDuel, I think there are two things. One is that um, some of the, the contests are more medium-sized as far as the field, and I think sometimes that is something that it gives you a better shot of winning, right? If it's a 300-person or a 1,000-person field instead of a 10,000-person, obviously you have a better shot of winning. So if you are kind of a skilled fantasy golfer, so to speak, uh, it gives you a better chance of realizing that edge in a shorter time window. And then the other thing is so much of the content and the models are centered around DraftKings that you don't really get as much um, of that on FanDuel. And so, like, Patrick Cantley is a good example of a guy that we were talking up this week. We have projected really well. Um, if, it, if, if his mispricing on DraftKings generates chatter in the industry, he's actually priced appropriately on FanDuel. And so he seems like a guy that would definitely be in play at DraftKings. But if, if that ownership carries over to FanDuel and his $9,900 price tag, seems like he's kind of a poor play in that format. And you can get pivots off of him who have um, you know better chances of doing well. And I, I think that is one of the other ways. Um, a lot of times we want to be able to diversify uh, the you know, golfers that we're rostering. And we do that on DraftKings. We do it in a way that pr they're priced suboptimally. And so I think that playing FanDuel is one way that you can get exposure to some of those same golfers where they're priced a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, one of the guys that stood out to me as really substantially underpriced uh, on FanDuel was Lucas Glover who's obviously been in the news a little bit of late because of the, the relationship challenges with his wife or whatever that issue was after uh, the, the players. Um, he's only 7,600 on FanDuel, and when I think of Lucas Gulliver, I think of ball striking and approach. Um, he does have distance that he adds, adds uh, strokes with T to green, but 7,600, I mean, that's $600 less than Sam Burns. That's over $1,000 less than um, guys like Z Zach Johnson uh, or a couple thousand dollars less than Zach Johnson. It's in like that Bud Colley kind of range. And that seems pretty cheap for Lucas Glover. So if you're building kind of through studs, I think Lucas Glover is a pretty interesting source of salary relief on FanDuel. Yeah, and I think the, the last kind of guy I would mention is a FanDuel play that rates as a bad um, value for us on DraftKings. Uh, would be Charles Schwartzel, um, generating a little bit of chatter and a little bit of ownership on DraftKings and it, to the point where it seems like a guy I would have no exposure to, uh, but is, is mispriced a little bit on FanDuel. And so if you, one of the things you can do just kind of quickly is a comparison between the two sites in their pricing, just using a formula. And um, he's kind of priced in, you know, at the same range as guys like uh, Kevin Na. And he probably should be, you know, 800 to $1,000 cheaper on DraftKings, but he's priced in a place where I think that exposure to him does make sense. He's you know as high as uh, 35 or 40% to T20 in some of the betting markets, um, which still doesn't make him a, a great DraftKings play, but does put him in, in play on FanDuel. And I guess the last comment there is just to examine the, the scoring system. I know we talked a little bit about it, but 
Uh, you do get the same kind of level of place points for second to fifth place uh, finish. So sometimes just having a few guys in that range actually makes it in the smaller field tournaments where you don't actually need the winning golfer, which is always nice. Yeah, and you mentioned Adam Hadwin, who's like up around 10,000 on FanDuel. And you look at some of the guys that he's priced around on DraftKings, like Ryan Moore and Keegan Bradley, those guys are low 9,000s on FanDuel. So that's a that's a good way to kind of tell where, where some value might be had and might be available to you. Between the two sites, I think over the course of the summer, as the events get bigger and as we approach the U.S. Open, we'll try to do a better job um, covering FanDuel, uh, covering uh, some more betting stuff, which we've opened up with our betting blog that we've had free uh, the last few weeks. I don't think we hit any top 20s last week, which was a, a little bit uh, of, you know, a, a real a, more of a realized expectation after running pretty hot the first few weeks on top 20s. We will make sure to have that updated uh, later in the week when uh, betting odds come out on some of those top 20s. Uh, so make sure to look for that uh, over at Daily Roto. And uh, Colin, are there any other thoughts that, that you want to leave us with uh, before we go and tackle this memorial? No, I mean, that's about it. It's really a good event this week, really good field. I think, you know, next week we're probably looking at a disappointing one. And so uh, looking forward to this one and looking forward to uh, the U.S. Open. I know we'll all be together live sweating that. And so kind of exciting uh, few weeks of fantasy golf coming up. And I think that this week will be kind of the, the best opportunity that we have uh, to to watch and enjoy a really strong field event before we get to the U.S. Open. Yeah, we'll definitely have some weaker field events before we get to the to the U.S. Open, the St. Jude uh, next week. And then once we hit the U.S. Open, like we're in prime stretch for the golf season with the Open Championship, uh, the player, the uh, the PGA Championship uh, coming up. They, they seem to like come come quickly and, and come right on top of each other um, in, in the in the summer months. So. Um, that'll do it for this week's edition of uh, Going for the Green with Daily Roto. If you're checking us out on iTunes, uh, please drop us a rating and review. Uh, that helps keep us uh, kind of on the radar for people looking for golf co- podcasts, keeps us doing this content, uh, and keeps it free for your ears week after week. Um, we want to wish everybody the best of luck in the memorial event this week. Uh, hopefully we provided some information that can help you guys build good lineups. Uh, so that'll that'll be it for myself, uh, Drew Dickmar, and Colin Drew. Uh, in, in Daily Roto, that's it for this week's Daily Roto.